0: Hi there and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Who's Driving This Bus edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell. It's Thursday, May 1st, and joining me today in the newsroom studio for the show are Provincial Affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. Columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. It's been something of a milestone week in Alberta politics with announcements and developments that are sure to add to an already shifting and changing political landscape. You can put them in broad categories of leadership and labor deals. So why don't we start with the leadership question? And I know we haven't wanted to talk too much about the party leadership contest on this show, given that, you know, it's an internal party matter. But there were a couple of major developments this week that I think we would just be it would be a shame if we didn't talk about so where should we start graham with the ndp or the pcs let's do
1: with the ndp okay because it's new it's something uh unexpected in one sense leader brian mason um he announced on tuesday this week he's actually stepping down he'll be retiring in october as leader of the ndp now it was a shock in the sense that we didn't expect it right now we've been hearing for some time that he would likely be stepping down during this mandate at some point uh, but we had heard nothing. There's Usually there's rumors leaking out on these things. When a leader is going to step down, we usually hear something coming out. He apparently just told his caucus on Tuesday morning, um, boom, I'm leaving, and then he had a news conference within minutes of that saying, I'll, I'll be out in October. It does mean he's sticking around, though, as leader. After the uh, leadership, he's hoping the convention will be in October, uh, middle of October. He'll stay on as, as an MLA. He may actually stay on again and run again and be a, sort of a, a backbench, I can call it that, MLA yeah. for the NDP. Yeah. So he's not actually leaving politics altogether, but it was a surprise that was done so quickly this week.
0: Miriam, what was what was this like Tuesday? Were you there in the room when he called this press conference? What what, what was the mood like at the time?
2: Yeah, I, um, I, uh, I was there. I think it was when we got the news release that morning. Um, it was sort of reminiscent of Redford's news release when she said she had an important announcement to make. It was really similar to that. You know, Brian Mason is going to be making an important announcement there's only a few things that could mean. Um, And it seemed pretty unlikely that there was going to be an announcement about an NDP floor crosser or something like that. So I think by that point, we all had figured that that was what he was going to be doing. And then of course, when he came into the room, he, his wife was with him and his son was there. And so by that point, we knew. Um, And it wasn't very long into his remarks that he'd said that he was going to be stepping down, as Graham said, effective October 19th, I believe. And what he wants is to have the leadership convention, uh, October 18th and 19th. And so he'll remain leader until then, but we'll, we're going to be having another two, two basically two uh, leadership campaigns, this uh, two leadership races this summer, which will be interesting. His remarks were really interesting because he, he said that it was time for him to step down because he felt that a new leader could come in and sort of breathe new life into the party and um, encourage progressively minded people to vote for them ahead of the next election. And he really painted it as, um, the only real opposition to what he he seemed to be pointing to a a wild rose government in 2016. I mean, he did talk about the PCs here and there. He almost caught himself and said, you know, I guess I shouldn't just say wild rose. Um, But he certainly seemed to be suggesting that in 2016, it was going to be a wild rose government. And that um, his leaving the party was going to set the party up, leaving the leadership was going to set the party up for, you know, a new face, new life, and, and perhaps sort of a new momentum going forward.
0: What did you make of this reaction, Paula? Because for me, I'm trying to think of a time that I remember without Brian Mason
3: in politics in in Edmonton. I mean, well, it's an. Ex- I mean, it is a real credit to him as a politician and as a human being. The outpouring of respectful response to his resignation from every party. Uh, it's an interesting thing. When I f- first went over to the legislature to be there full time, when I was covering off uh, when Graham was on a sabbatical, and one day I came into the cafeteria and saw Brian Mason having a very convivial lunch with Ted Morton, and. I came over and I said, oh, so here are the two of you having lunch. They said, oh, yeah, no, we get, you know, they were really good friends. I mean, he was the kind of politician who made um, friends in all parties, which never stopped him from being an extraordinary scrapper in the House from being one of the stars of Question Period, from asking some of the most penetrating questions. And yet, you know, we'll recall that he and Daniel Smith have spent much of the last year traveling to university campuses across the province doing these show debates together. Uh, He had an ability, while being fiercely partisan and fiercely committed to the ideals of the Democratic Party, to, you know, to the social liberalism of his party, to nonetheless have the respect, grudging, and not-so-grudging of people in every other party.
0: You're kind of, to me, sounding somebody who sounds like he's cut from the same cloth as Jim Flaherty, in a way, because those were a lot of the kinds of comments we heard uh, after Jim Flaherty died, that, you know, everybody seemed to love him or respect him, at least, regardless of, of what party they were from. Isn't
1: I, that- I think it helped uh, with um, <clears throat> Brian Mason. Um, I, th- I agree with Paul, uh, Like He was, and uh, both my colleagues, he was a very articulate um a great scrapper on the floor very fast on his feet a natural politician but also what helped him was the fact that he would never become premier uh the the government liked him as opposition because they knew where he stood and he was very clear on where he stood very often he was the only person speaking out for tax reform and things like that but he was never a threat to the government so they didn't see him as somebody that could actually defeat them so especially people like Ralph Klein like the NDP because they weren't a threat. And if you're not everybody a threat, but you speak for certain things um, that you can respect what they're saying, then people do like you because you're not going to be bringing them out of power.
0: So dare I ask, who could potentially replace Brian Mason? Was anybody willing to talk about about that? They, they, don't, they don't have as many choices as the progressive conservatives for seated
2: MLAs, certainly. No. Um, so none of the caucus really, of course, on Tuesday were willing to talk about their intentions. Um, but in in his sort of resignation speech, Brian uh, Mason did say that he hoped that all of his caucus would run and that he hoped that it would be a really competitive race. Um, You know, I think, obviously, one of the first names that comes to people's minds is Rachel Notley, just because of the sort of long connection she has with that party through her father. And also, um, I think many people look at her as as a really effective uh, member of the opposition who... Um, sort of in, in in the same way, I guess not as, as flashy or scrappy, but is, is um, effective in the way she
3: asks her questions in question period I mean, and that sort of thing. I mean, she's she's a highly intelligent woman. I mean, Brian Mason, I mean, one of the reasons we're calling this episode, you know, who's driving the bus, is of course he got his start as a bus driver, was a member of the transit union, went from there to city council and from there to the legislature. Rachel Notley's background is entirely different. I mean, she's a, a trained lawyer, the, the daughter, of course, of Grant Notley you know, I guess as Justin Trudeau is to the federal liberals, Rachel Notley is to the provincial New Democrats. And I think for family reasons, she didn't have leadership aspirations. Now her children are older. Um, I think that she would be an extremely credible leader of the party. The, the other name is, of course, Dave Egan.
1: Yeah, yeah these two names. Um, I think that Egan maybe wants it more. I think that uh, Egan, I think, has been planning this moment for years. He really seems to want to want to be leader of the NDP. I think though the better choice I think right now would probably be um, Rachel Notley. She's just more likable. I think people actually do warm up to her.
3: I mean they're both you know intelligent and competent people. I think Rachel Notley has a higher public profile Um, and I think you know I've been on a stage moderating an event where she and Danielle Smith were both speaking. They're they're yeah, fascinating to watch the two of them together. I mean, they're really well matched. I, you know, as, as somebody who you know tends to watch Question Period these days from more of a distance, I would I would love to see the Rachel and Danielle show and the Laurie Blakeman show. That would be kind of awesome. <laughs> With the Progressive Conservatives, there was a lot of talk about outside people.
0: With the NDP, is anyone talking about an outside savior to come and rejuvenate the party?
1: I've heard of the crickets. Why? Well, another thing is this: this is coming on so suddenly. But an outside savior, there's not really needed a savior. You need somebody to actually grow the party, right? I wouldn't. I don't know. The, the word savior is needed for the conservatives, <laughs> not for the NDP.
0: Okay. Well, so speak. We've we've gone. We've wandered our way into the conservative <laughs> but, party here. Yes. Tell me, Graham, what happened this week? with that party
1: yeah bizarre soft launch of Jim Prentice's campaign it was bizarre because what happened there was no official announcement Prentice hasn't talked to us the media got a call from his the Prentice campaign a person in Prentice's campaign that we know in the media we trust this person this person is saying don't name me but Jim will be announcing in the next week or so he's gonna be in this race And so what happened at first, the media then began tweeting it, and it began this snowball effect. So even though Jim Prentice has not announced anything yet, somebody in his campaign, if I can call it a campaign yet, is saying that Prentice will be announcing next week. So the national media ran with this. It became this big national story. So I think that uh, it's an interesting way of launching it, the media and a sense got sucked into it, so we 'll we'll be talking about this now we 're talking about it now for the next two weeks, and then he 's going to announce it it 'll be a big story then we expect a week a week from today, a week from tomorrow he 'll be announcing it probably May ninth and then it'll be a big issue again across the country.
3: It's like it's like waiting for Godot, though. I mean, it's really funny. I mean, I, I came home that day and I said to my family, "So here's the big story." And they said, "Oh, is Jim Prentice running?" I said, "No. An anonymous person close to Jim Prentice says Jim Prentiss is thinking about striking a committee to investigate running." And
1: well, no, actually he is. That's more than that. He yeah. said he is going to run. He's right now getting the team together. He'll announce his vision for Alberta next week.
3: Yeah, but it, you know. What what made me laugh is that on Twitter every single media outlet announced that they had this exclusively. I, so
1: not not us. <laughs> no, no.
3: I mean, you know, but the we Herald didn't. said exclusive, know, and, the, and the CBC said exclusive, and the, and the and CTV said exclusive. And, and, and,
1: and all that was was a person <laughs> making the calls for each. New, so I, we were fourth in the line <laughs> oh, yeah I see know.
3: nobody called me I you know oh. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm you know I'm not on I'm not on Mr. Anonymous's uh, Rolodex or I Mrs. Guess.
0: we don't even yeah. know could be Mrs. It, it Anonymous was a guy. <laughs> all right all right
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I talked to him he called me so I'm sorry I called you so late and by then <laughs> it had been out and, uh, on, on Twitter and I was thinking at first journalistically you're thinking journalistically what do you do with this? If someone else has an anonymous source saying this is going to happen we think next week what do you do with that? But then the calls began going to all the media and then it kind of there's also an issue here about media ethics as well I think uh, it's, it's a great uh, issue I think for uh, journalism students to figure out how do you deal with this kind of thing because um, Twitter does change it. Normally a person can make telephone calls to the media in the old days, like a decade ago, nothing would happen until Supper Hour News or perhaps the next morning's newspapers. Now, all of a sudden, it's on, on Twitter immediately.
0: What's been the reaction to his entry into the race? If, well, his, his whatever the heck <laughs> this is. Well, <laughs> his, his soft his entry. Steps yeah. into
2: the to the towards the line there, yeah. Um, well, I think everyone's been expecting this, even though it's not officially official yet. Um, the Wild Roses already uh, come out, you know, Daniel Smith came out and called him a red Tory um and yeah so they're they're really trying to sort of paint him as of of cut from the sort of same cloth I guess we could say as
3: Redford and, and not just ideologically but trying to paint him as an elitist an outsider somebody who hasn't lived in Alberta sort of the Michael Ignatiev of Alberta politics you know he didn't come home for you
2: right and I think and I think too there uh, you know many people are saying um is it really good for the party if someone who has sort of built up all of this hype around him comes in and is basically, you know, uh, as some have called him, the 800 pound gorilla comes into the race and is, the, and is basically, uh, you know, and then it's a coronation. Is Does that send the right message either? Um, you know, in the Wild Rose, for example, and, and other opposition parties, too, have been saying from the beginning since Redford resigned that it's not about the leader or whoever takes over that office, it's about the party and, and that the problems with the party are so deeply rooted that one person isn't going to be able to come in and fix them in two years before but the next track, election.
1: That, sorry, is it, is that, there's a track record though in Alberta that It is about the leader and I, I know the opposition is trying to paint the whole caucus and it's a good strategy, say they're all bad people basically politically, but Alberta has a history where you change the leaders of the PC party and you change the culture, and people end up voting again for the PCs. You saw it with Don Getty, for example, very low on the polls. They bring in Ralph Klein. Ralph Klein campaigns against Getty, basically, and then wins. Can it happen again? It's happened before. The stalemate happened with, of course, Redford. Um, But they're checking out these boxes, saying, okay, we want somebody who's an outsider, in a sense, not actually in the caucus, not tied to all the scandals, not tied to the, the spending issues with Redford. But somebody who still actually is an insider because they have support within caucus, um, they know caucus, they know the PCs in Alberta, they've they got respect. So then you start checking them off. Somebody who's got a conservative um, credentials. And that's you know you go down this list uh, and it, you check it off in this prentice. So he's both an outsider and an insider. At is the same is time. that what
0: his appeal is? Because I, I admit I've been struggling to understand what what is the appeal. Like why is he seen as this great candidate? I mean I know he was a. Okay, federal minister. Was he a great federal minister?
1: No, you're right. He's not got great charisma, but uh, he's seen as competent. That, that's a big well, issue right good, now. Well, that's good. and scandal free.
3: He's also, I mean, he's also well liked and respected by the media. And it, it, this begs an interesting question. I, I have a lot of respect for Jim Prentice. I think that uh, you know he stood up for uh, gay and lesbian rights in Stephen Harper's caucus, which was not easy. I think he was quite a good minister of Indian Affairs who really tried to make some progress on uh, what's a very difficult file. But I don't know that he has as much profile outside of the media and Calgary's business elite as people within the party seem to think that he does. I think if you stopped somebody on the street of Lethbridge or Fort McMurray and said, who's Jim Prentice, I don't know that they would know. I mean, I I think...
1: That doesn't really matter, I don't think it does. At this point, you could say, yes, they don't know, but give it six months for leadership, and then he'll become premier. If, if, if he wins the leadership, yes. he, I mean, he he he, the he, PC he'll leader. automatically
3: become the premier, and but, all of a yeah.
1: sudden, then he raises his profile. Look at like Stelmach; no one knew who Stelmach was, and he was.
3: Well, but Stelmach had Stelmack did have a kind of popularity. It's interesting because Graham made a point uh, in, in something he wrote earlier this week that there is a curse on front runners yeah. in this in this province in this party. I mean, uh, it was supposed to be a Jim Dinning coronation; it was supposed to be a Gary Marr coronation. And you go
1: back to Nancy Petkowski actually yeah. beat Ralph Klein in the first ballot in 1992.
3: Let's turn to the man currently
0: in the premier chair dave hancock and he has had a somewhat of a busy week it sounds like while other people have been talking about will will, are they going to enter their leadership or talking about retiring from one part of their job he suddenly it sounds like got a deal on the labor front very which is something that yeah kind of came out of the blue for me you've covered this can you Tell me what happened this week. You were expecting to cover one thing, I think, on Monday. Something else happened.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, Monday morning, I went to the uh, Alberta Court of Appeals um, to hear the um, government's appeal of the Bill 46 injunction. You'll remember that that injunction was granted by uh, Justice Denny Thomas uh, earlier this year in February. He ruled that um, a- AUPE had brought the the application for the injunction against the bill forward after it was passed into law. And
0: that was a bill that imposed a settlement as of a certain date, March right? 31st, and I it, believe. And it was a deal that included no wage increases for the first two years? And yeah, it was you know, pretty 1%. austere.
2: And, and um, I think from the union's perspective, what was more... More egregious was the fact that the bill um, would have suspended their right to go to binding arbitration um, in a contract dispute. Okay, so
0: you were expecting to hear an argument about this injunction. And And then then what
2: happened? And then the lawyers came in and there was a bit of conferencing very quietly. And I said, something looks like it's up here. Um, And they came out and they said that they wanted to stay their appeal. Um, The government, there was no reason provided. They said that the situation would become more clear in a few months. Um, and uh, and then we were told by the lawyer for the AUP that there would be a statement later on, and so of course this started everyone thinking, well, they must they must have struck a deal. Um, and then it turned out that they had the night before, really at the eleventh hour, um, and so they were able to come to an agreement that um, it's a four year agreement. Um, the unions, government employees, they've been without a contract since March 31st, so it's a, a four year retroactive deal. They get a um, eighteen hundred. Uh, $1,850 um, uh, lump sum in the first year, and there is a 6.75% wage increase over uh, the following three years. So uh, obviously much more than what was included in the Bill 46 terms, and it was higher also than what the government had previously offered. Um, but I, I really found it interesting that it really came down to the wire there, where where it was literally the day before the appeal was going to be heard.
0: Right, so... so- This has not been approved yet by either the union or the cabinet, right? Both Dave Hancock and AUPE President Guy Smith said they were going to take it to their respective members, I guess, for lack of a better term. But why do you think, Graham, that Hancock decided to to settle on on a deal like this when for months we've been hearing from the PCs that there's no more money there's no money for wage increases
1: well i think you know well redford's gone that whole team has gone who are pushing this forward i think this is a way to try and rebuild bridges we've talked about this before and Paula's mentioned it, that that uh, redford was actually sniping at the groups that were s- supporting her this is a way of building a bridge back to labor groups, building a bridge and mending the fences because that's part of the job that Hancock's going to have to do, I think, is over the next four or five months start to mend fences so they can actually have, when they bring a new leader in, actually have um, a a good platform to actually hopefully jump up in the polls for them. So I think this is a way of trying to rebuild trust with their civil servants and actually try and rebuild trust with people who actually supported the PCs last time around.
0: Did, Did Guy Smith say anything about Dave Hancock's role in this deal then
2: they they had changed the bargaining committee um earlier this year the government bargaining committee so there had been some steps um but yeah Guy Smith when he um uh, at his press conference this on Monday talking about the agreement did really credit um premier uh, Hancock with um meeting with him and talking he said in an open and respectful uh way about the issues that were on the table um, and and I also made a point of saying that Thomas Lukasik, the labor minister, had nothing to do with that, uh, those (laughs) talks. Um, So just a a little dig there. But, uh, you know, it's the same it's the same union that last year put out an open letter saying Remove. Thomas Lukazak as labor minister because he's part of the problem. Um, but yeah, he definitely um, gave, gave a lot of credit to to the premier for, for meeting and sitting down with the union leaders.
0: Do
3: you I- think this deal is going to have budget ramifications? Do you? Well, it can't help but have budget ramifications because there's so many workers in the public sector. But I think really it has to be said this is a huge win for Guy Smith and a huge win for AUPE. And it just shows you... I mean, I suppose you could argue that maybe... The government was playing some kind of strategic long game, and that you know bringing in the bill brought them back to the bargaining table. But I think you would have to be smoking whatever Rob Ford was smoking to think that. I mean, and I, there it is. And there it is. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that uh, I think that at AUP they must have been popping champagne corks. This is a huge moral and uh, legal victory for them.
1: Yeah, and I, I, that's a very good point. I think the, another reason why the government actually, in a sense, gave AUPE this was because they were going to lose in court. You know, they, they lost, well, I think they would have lost in court. This injunction, you see Justice J- Denny Thomas's comments getting the temporary injunction was just slamming the government's arguments about, and he was saying the government was uh, bargaining in bad faith. There's a good chance they could have lost this injunction, then been forced into the corner through arbitration now they at least they appear to be taking some kind of high road and actually working with the AUP as opposed to being forced into it by the courts.
0: This bill, Bill 46, had a companion, Bill 45. What's the status of that? That was the measure that imposed more severe penalties on- for strikes. That's right. Or for on, the threat of strikes. strikes. Yeah. We're yeah.
2: talking about job actions. That, is that still It's in on play? the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, It has not been proclaimed, but it's there sort of waiting in the wings for maybe when it needs to be used. It can be very quickly proclaimed through uh, an order in council. Um, So it's still there. uh, And it's still the subject of legal challenges as well. Um, As for Bill 46, it's the injunction against it still stands. But like I said earlier, the government reserved its um, right to come back and appeal. Uh, You know, now looking back at what the lawyer said in court that day, the situation would be clearer in a few months obviously I think what he was referring to there is whether or not the deal gets ratified by AUPE members which would probably happen in June if it happens um, and so I think perhaps if that deal isn't ratified um, we could expect to be perhaps
3: back in court oh I think I mean AUP members would also have to be in <laughs> Rob Ford's sister's basement on the pipe to not ratify and this
1: there we deal go again
0: so, on the labor front, we've got may- some good stuff. How about here in our own studio, Good Stuff from the Gallery, our weekly segment where we recommend something interesting to read, watch, or listen to that, you know, has a political connection of s- however tangential we want to make it. Um, Graham, do you want to start?
1: Um, yeah, a report released today by the Canadian uh, the Council of Canadian Academics, a report done on fracking the federal government.
0: You've stolen mine. That's okay. one can that Tell me. it's
1: it's an important, <laughs> I have not read, it's a 260-page report. I've not read the report yet. I've seen the synopsis. I've read the news media. I'll get into it later on today. But to me, it's really important. This is a report for the federal government commissioned by Peter Kemp when he was environment minister saying, how safe is fracking? What do we know about it? Of course, fracking is using um, um, uh, liquids like water and other chemicals underground to um, crack shale deposits to get oil and gas. Alberta's using it for oil. BC's using it it for natural gas. This report is saying we don't know enough about it because it may start to endanger our drinking water supplies. It's really important questions. We allow these things to go ahead, and then we ask the questions, is it safe after the fact? And this is actually going to be a major issue uh, environmentally and politically moving forward.
0: I endorse absolutely everything you just said, so <laughs> it's got a double recommendation to read that report. Oh, aren't we going to have a fun afternoon ahead of us reading the <laughs> fracking
3: report? Oh, excellent. The report. Paula, what's your good stuff? All right, my good stuff is something a little closer to home. I'm going to recommend a piece by Colby Kosh of Maclean's. For people who don't know Colby Cosh, he's Maclean's magazine's Edmonton-based curmudgeon. He's sort of a political essayist who has... Um, cornered the market on being sardonic and so he has a uh wicked piece this week called jim'll fix it uh which is about uh jim prentice's soft entry into the uh pc leadership race he manages though um because nobody is safe when colby kosh is wielding his keyboard he manages to slam i think every Party in the uh, in the Alberta Legislature and what you might call a brilliant example of radial satire. So I'm going to recommend um, uh, Jim will fix it on the McLean's website. Thanks, Paula. It sounds good.
2: Miriam, how about you? Um, my Goodread recommendation is a um, 48 page review of Free Expression in Canada, published by the Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. It's their fifth annual report. Um, it is not like a 48-page meaty report, so don't worry about that. There's lots of different like articles in there. Are there charts? There are charts. Excellent. There are <laughs> by-the-numbers graphs. There are um, cool articles about FOIP. Um, there's something in there about Brent Rathgaber and a private member's bill that he pulled off the order paper after it morphed into something he never wanted it to be there's just a lot of a lot of really interesting pieces in there um so i'd uh, i'd really recommend that that sounds week. good and what's that called again it's the canadian journalist for free expression 2013-14 annual review of free expression in canada it was released this week to uh, coincide with world press freedom day which is saturday thanks miriam well since i'm driving the bus for this show we'll call it
0: quits there <laughs> everybody can get out at the next stop Seriously, you can find old episodes of the podcast, not old, but vintage. vintage Thank you. On slash opinion. You can also find us if you search on our SoundCloud page and find Edmonton Journal on SoundCloud to soundcloud.com or on Facebook, slash the press gallery. And you can make a comment there, suggest topics, talk to us, ask questions. We'll do our best to monitor that and, uh, and, 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 answer those questions and reply to your comments we'll be back next week thanks for listening